Hey, thank you, John, for reading that to us. Um, we're studying the book of Galatians. Well, it's not a book, it's a letter written by Paul to uh, some Christians in this area, modern-day Turkey. And doesn't it begin with a bang? Galatians chapter 3 begins with a bang. You idiots! Who's put a spell on you? Imagine getting a letter like that. Imagine the preacher starting his sermon like that. He can't believe what they're doing. Various commentators have compared this letter to Paul setting a lion loose on them, setting a clap of thunder in their ears. People have talked about his pen being on fire. What's clear is that Paul is try, he's almost trying to climb down his pen and give them a shake to wake them up. This is Paul's most passionate letter. And whatever Paul's trying to do here with these people, what is crystal clear, I hope, is that this matters to him. This is serious to him. It is too important for him to be vague. We talk about dancing on the tulips. This letter isn't dancing on the tulips. You idiots! Let's try and build up what we know. Seems clear from what we've learned already that these Galatians, these Christian believers in this area had made a great start to their Christian lives. And somehow, having made a great start, they've lost their way. So, in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 6, Paul starts this letter by saying, Guys, I'm shocked. I'm astonished. How can you so quickly be deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and turn to a different gospel? They had it. And they're going astray. Later on in chapter 5, we haven't got there yet, we will eventually. Chapter 5, verse 7, just over the page there, Paul says to them, Guys, you were running a good race. Who cut in on you and kept you from obeying the truth? In chapter 4 and verse 15, Paul wonders out loud as he writes, What has happened to all your joy? If you could have done so, you would have torn your eyes out and given them to me. In other words, their joy is gone. Their generosity is gone. These Galatians had started so well, but something has gone terribly wrong. You may recall that Jesus once told a parable about a sower who went out into his field, scattering seed. You know the story? Some seed fell on the path. Some seed fell on shallow soil. It grew quick, and then just as quickly it died. These Galatians seem to be just like that. Like that farmer, Paul had sowed the seed of the Word of God. And these Galatians got it straight away. They quickly sprouted into joyful life. And now they've stopped growing. They're going a bit brown on the edges. A bit limp. Look at what Paul says over the page, chapter 4, verse 11. What a poignant thing for Paul to say. I fear for you. I fear for you that somehow I wasted my efforts on you. This whole letter is written to people who had started well and were going wrong. And Paul is writing here to say, I don't want you to wither and die. I want you to be fruitful. I don't want you to be the seed that was in the shallow soil. I want you to bear a crop. 
I think that makes this very relevant to us, doesn't it? I think it makes it very relevant to everyone. We all long to live lives, don't we, that are fruitful. What is the secret of that? Do you know, I think even people who don't identify as religious want this. We're wired this way. We want our lives to count. We want our lives to make a difference. We want to have a purpose. In short, we want our lives to be fruitful. We all, we all want to know the secret of spiritual power. That's what this is about. I was chatting to Rob the other day about his new course. Um, You can talk to him about it. He's studying cultural theory, I think. And he's been learning that a lot of the clever people, clever people, cleverer people than me, a lot of the people who write about culture in, in the last century have basically been Marxists. These people are trying to understand what drives people, what creates a fair, stable, fruitful society. And a lot of their writing has gone out of fashion because some of their ideas didn't seem to work. But Rob was telling me that there are some writers who claim that even though some of the theories that they've written about haven't worked, some writers claim that the ideas were right, they were just applied wrong. You know that? And I said to Rob, we were sat in our kitchen, I said to Rob, it sounds to me like these people are running up a hill. And then they fall all the way back down to the bottom, and then they run up the hill again and have another go. And they fall all the way back to the bottom, and then they run up again. And Rob, bless him, said, no, Dad. That's why he's doing it, not me. He said, no, Dad. The truth is, these guys are all basically depressed. They're all standing around at the bottom of the hill feeling suicidal. They've taken a fresh run up this hill so many times and fallen back to the bottom that they don't believe anymore that anything will work. First of all, do pray for Rob. I'm really concerned that he's surrounded by pessimists for the next two years. And that this course is just going to make him feel miserable. So pray for Rob. But do you see? Do you see? Everyone longs to live a fruitful life. And we get terribly sad, don't we? When that's not the case. This passage is incredibly relevant. What is the secret of spiritual power? How can our lives be fruitful? How can I begin well, live well, and end well? Do you know what? I I think one of the reasons Paul is worth listening to here is that Paul himself has been trying to run up the exact same hill. He wasn't a Marxist, obviously. He was a Jew. His hope wasn't in politics or philosophy. His hope was in his religion. And if ever there was a man that tried to run up that hill, it was him. If religion was an Olympic sport, he'd be a triple gold winning, gold medal winning legend. No one trained harder, worked harder, achieved more, or knew more than he did. He says in chapter 1 that no one in his generation was as good as him. Verse 14 of chapter 1, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age. I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. Until he met Christ. And that is exactly the contrast that Paul is trying to make. Before he met Christ, he was all about running hard up that hill. 
He actually thought that Jesus was an idiot. Some kind of loser. How could the promised glorious Messiah be crucified like a criminal outside of Jerusalem? What a loser. These Christians are stupid. It's like some kind of sick joke. And then he met the risen Christ. And in a flash, his whole life was totally transformed and he had been on fire ever since. Paul's own life, therefore, had been about two contrasting approaches. At first, he was all about trying to run up the hill himself. And then he learned what it meant to trust in the finished, perfect work of Christ. Faith, not works. So in chapter 3, he turns to address these believers in Galatia who had started so well and who were now going astray. Now, we're going to try and cover 18 verses today. Joan read them to us. The other night, I read these verses to Jane, my wife, that is. Not some other Jane. And uh, I got to the end. And she said, wow, there's a lot in that. (laughs) And I said, I know. (laughs) I've got to break this up and try and teach this to people. I need about six months to do this. My colleagues know that. Don't worry, we're not going to take six months. Let me try and make this as simple as I can. Paul basically has three stirring arguments in this section and all of them are aimed at getting these believers back on track so that they can be fruitful. That's the background to this. And if you've got one of the programs there, you'll see the three things that he wants them to know. You need to understand yourself. You need to understand the overall thrust of the Bible. And you need to understand the good character of God. So let's rattle through and try and finish inside six months. Oh, I already asked that. Number one, understand yourself. This is verses one to five. Paul basically begins by appealing to their own personal experience. Sometimes that's not a good place to start. Sometimes our personal experience can be messy. But Paul does begin there. He argues from their own personal experience. He urges them to think carefully about what has happened to them. You idiots, he says. Who's put a spell on you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. And then he asked five questions. I'd like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the spirit, spiritual power? Did you receive the spirit by obeying the law or by believing what you heard? That's what I want to know. He isn't calling them foolish here in the sense of insulting them. He's not calling them stupid. The problem here isn't a lack of intelligence. The problem here is their lack of spiritual discernment. Their problem wasn't a lack of sense. It was a lack of faith. And so there's a lot in this. We're just going to talk about two things. First of all, he says to them, remember how you began. The key question there, did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Do you know, in these verses here, there's nothing, in fact, in this section about them doing anything. This whole section is about them hearing and seeing and believing something. And what was it? Paul says that the key was that a crucified Christ had filled their vision. Their faith sprang to life when it dawned on them that Jesus had died for them to save them. 
they realised, like Paul had realised, that they weren't saved by trying to run up the hill. They were saved by what Christ had done for them. Came across an interesting insight on this idea. The word portray, it's, it's actually the word that we get the word placard from. You know what a placard is? Like a poster. In Roman culture, when your kids got to a certain age and basically could look after themselves, I'm excited about this, the dad would put a placard up, sometimes at the end of the drive or at the gate, and it would say on the placard, basically, this is Roman culture, if they're in debt, don't come to me. They're on their own two feet now. Don't come knocking on my door if they're in debt. And they would placard that on the end of the gate. This is where they live. (laughs) I'm looking forward to that. No, I'm not really. What Paul is saying here, friends, is the exact opposite of that. Paul put up a placard that said that God... Their heavenly father had settled all their debts. By sending his son to pay them all off. And they believed it. And they loved it. And they treasured it. And that's how they began their Christian lives. Friends, that's where all of us need to begin if we're going to live a Christian life. Secondly, Paul says, remember the glory that is now yours. It's interesting, you know, Paul writes other letters in the New Testament. In the book of Romans, Paul uses some similar arguments that he does here. But the focus there is on something that the Bible calls justification. Paul is interested in their righteous standing before God. But here, did you notice, he doesn't, he says, I want to learn just one thing from you. Did you become justified? He doesn't say that here. His argument here is different. Did you receive the Spirit? He says, it's I think those things are the same in Paul's mind in some ways, but he's leaning in a slightly different direction. That's why I think this is about fruitfulness. Paul reminds them that they've received the Spirit of God when they believed in Jesus and his crucifixion. There's an American writer called Tim Keller. Some of you will know him well. And he gives a brilliant illustration of this from the Lord of the Rings stories. I was trying to think of a better one. My illustration never, you just have to go with Keller's because these are always the best. So I'll just tell you Keller's and own up to it. Tim Keller points out that in the Lord of the Rings, Bilbo Baggins gives to Frodo, Mr. Frodo, he gives to Frodo a coat of armor to wear. It's like a bulletproof vest made of this special metal, super light and totally impenetrable. Frodo puts it on, puts his scruffy coat on over the top. And one day, as they're on their journey, he overhears a conversation between some of the other companions. You might know the story. And one of the friends says to the other, Bilbo Baggins was a very rich man. In fact... In spite of how rich Bilbo Baggins was, do you know that he had one thing that was worth more than everything else he owned put together? Many years ago, someone gave him a coat made of mithril, metal. And the other guy's like, what? (laughs) A whole coat made of mithril? That would be like worth more than all the houses in all the country put together. And Frodo's overhearing this. 
And he's thinking to himself, underneath my scruffy jacket, I've got, I'm wearing something that's worth more than the entire country. Friends, that's what Paul's saying here. You Galatians trusted Christ and him crucified for you. And you are now walking around with the spirit of the living God inside you. Under all your external ordinariness, scruffiness, is the very glory of the living God. Paul's argument here to these dear believers is, you're unbelievable. You're unbelievable. You're all crazy. How can you know Jesus and his death for you? How can you have seen that and believe that and as a result be walking around with the Spirit of God in your heart and then let these weirdos derail you? What are they giving you that's better than that? Can you see where Paul's going in his argument? Think about what's happened to you. Think about the glory God has given you. If you want to be fruitful, you need to understand what has happened to you. Or what needs to happen to you. This is how we begin. And this is the glory, friends, that is ours. Secondly, grasping the Bible's true point or thrust is also very important. I want you to understand something very important here. There were teachers in these con- there were teachers in these congregations who were telling these new Christians that Christ is great, but he's not enough. And do you know what they base their teaching on? The Bible. What Paul has preached to you is like entry-level Christianity. But to really make progress to the next level, you need to be obeying the law and living like good Jewish believers have always lived. In fact, some of you Gentiles, if you were circumcised, that would really prove your faith in Jesus. You'd be really on like level three then. These guys were using chapter and verse from the Old Testament scriptures to persuade these new Christians to do Jewish things to complete their salvation. Do you get that? That's hard, isn't it? They're not just coming up with random stuff. They're, they're, let's have a Bible study. And these, these poor Christians are like, well, it's in the Bible. Listen, Paul here does not mince his words because he is in a fight here. He is actually using the Bible in a fight with other people who are also using the Bible. That's why in the space of nine verses, he quotes from the Old Testament six times. It makes it hard for us. The reason this section is complex is because Paul is trying to show them what the Bible really means. It doesn't mean that. It means this. scary, isn't it? That people could even use the Bible to lead others into complete darkness. But Paul is he's wise to it and he basically gets to work wrestling the Bible out of the hands of his enemies and he does it with two arguments. I'm going to suggest one is positive and the other negative. The positive argument is about Abraham. And his point is, Abraham was saved through his faith, not through his behavior. That's his point, positively. Abraham traditionally has been viewed by Jewish people as a great warrior of faith who God blessed because 
he was faithful. One Jewish writer, writing in around 200 BC, said this, Great Abraham was the father of many nations. No one has ever been found to equal him in fame. He kept the law of the Most High, and when he was tested, he proved faithful. Therefore, the Lord swore an oath to him that nations should find blessing through his descendants and that his family should be countless as the dust of the earth and be raised as high as the stars. Did you notice the word, therefore? Abraham was faithful. Therefore, God promised him something. I could show you others. We haven't got time. These people are preaching a gospel that says, God will bless you if you obey him. Lots of people read the Bible that way. And Paul is saying here, they're wrong. They're all wrong. And so Paul goes straight to the scriptures, but earlier than they've gone to the scriptures, he goes right back to the beginning and quotes the Bible. Galatians 3 verse 6 is a quotation from the Old Testament, from their own scriptures. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. What was the original basis of Abraham's relationship with God? That's the question Paul's asking. How did Abraham get right with God? Paul shows them that the Bible itself says that it was when he believed what God had promised him. And what the Bible says here is not that Abraham believed in God or believed something about God. He believed God and the promise that had come to him from God. And the Bible says that that was credited to him as righteousness. It's an odd phrase. It doesn't say that Abraham suddenly became righteous. He was still Abraham. But on account of his faith in the promise of God, righteousness was credited to him. If righteousness was like money, the idea here is that Abraham had nothing in the bank. And God comes to him and promises him, and Abraham believes the promise, and God puts a million pounds worth of righteousness in his account and says, that's yours, mate. Where did Abraham's righteousness come from? It was nothing to do with his performance or his behavior. It was a gift from God to him. Here's a contrast being made. Paul's opponent's view of the Bible was... That faith plus obedience equals salvation. What Paul's saying here is faith leads to salvation, and then that is what your obedience will flow out of. Can you see the difference between those two? It's very subtle, isn't it? Faith plus obedience equals salvation, or faith that leads to salvation, and then the fruit of that is obedience. That's a very different kind of obedience, isn't it? Paul goes back to the Bible and shows them in the Bible that even Abraham's later obedience was the fruit of his faith, not the cause of him being declared righteous. These are two different Gospels. One is by faith in God's promise, and the other one is trying to run up a hill. And these dear Galatians here have been made to feel that they're not in. You can't be true sons of Abraham. You're not circumcised like Abraham was. People are using the Bible to tell them that. Pouring cold water all over their joyful faith in Christ. Paul says, don't let these teachers exclude you. What does he say in verse 9? Those who rely on faith 
are blessed along with who? Abraham, the man of faith. If you believe God's promise, you're a child of Abraham. And your obedience will flow from that. Man, we need to race on. Are you still with me? I told you it was complicated, didn't I? The negative side, that's the positive side. Abraham was a man of faith. He proves it to them. The negative side is found in verse 10. I think verse 10 is a key, in a way, to the whole of Paul's argument. And it's that little word, rely. Paul says, anyone, all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Paul's logic here is, guys, if you submit to being circumcised, what you're actually saying is that you're relying for your status before God on your keeping of God's laws. And the moment you fall for that idea, you've come under a kind of curse because no one can actually do it. We haven't time to go into all the references here. The point is not that the law is bad or even that God curses people. The problem is that we are sinners who can't keep it perfectly. John Calvin said that it's as if the law curses us accidentally. I love that phrase. It's as if the law curses us accidentally on account of our own ability inability to keep it. Paul knows this, doesn't he? He's tried his best to run up that hill. He found he couldn't. And next comes one of the most amazing verses in the whole Bible. Verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, how? By becoming a curse for us. Christ is the Son of God. He actually did obey God's law perfectly. There was no curse hanging over him what Paul says here is that Christ became a curse for us I've alluded already to the shock of this for Paul the cross is part of the reason Paul hated Christ at first how can the Messiah be crucified like a criminal How can he look like such a weakling? How could they leave him to die? It's a scandal. This is outrageous. And people who are running up that hill, they can't hack this. The cross of Christ is an offense to them. It was to Paul. How could he be the Messiah if he was cursed? What melted Paul's angry heart was when he saw that Christ wasn't being cursed for his own sins. He had actually come to take the curse that was hanging over him. And in that moment, Paul's life was changed in a literal flash on that Damascus road. Paul has seen the true beauty of Christ. He didn't die as a weak victim. He wasn't accidentally killed by people who didn't like him. He died as a triumphant saviour. He came to lay down his life for people who didn't even know what he was doing. As Paul says here, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Christ died to get us out from under that curse. He didn't come into the world to condemn us or to make us run up the hill harder. 
or threaten us with sanctions. He saw our desperate plight and moved with compassion. He came to redeem us and take the curse off our shoulders. Martin Luther called this the great exchange. He said, Thou Christ art all my sin and curse. Or rather, I am thy sin and thy curse, thy death, thy wrath of God, thy hell, and contrariwise, thou art my righteousness, my blessing, my life, my grace of God, and my heaven. Another writer puts it like this, our guilt is borne by him, and his goodness comes to us. His love, which he poured out extravagantly on us, at the cross, is now received by us, and we come alive to his powerful spirit, loving, forgiving, accepting, renewing, and empowering. St. Paul's argument here culminates in verse 14. These positive, Abraham and the negativity of the curse, it all comes together in verse 14. Christ redeemed us. Why? In order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to you Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith, not performance, you might receive the promise of the Spirit. It's complex, isn't it? But isn't it glorious? These Galatians have been knocked off course. Someone has used the Bible to tell them that they weren't complete and should try harder. And Paul shows them that the Bible teaches the exact opposite. It isn't threatening them, but presenting Christ to them. And if they understand the Scriptures rightly, they'll see Christ in all of his glorious faithfulness. And that will be the fruit of their obedience. But he still hasn't finished, and neither am I. Because there's a point three. Knowing the good character of God, we haven't got time to go into all of this. This next section is not easy, so let me try and make it simple for you and for me. Imagine I invited you to my house for a lovely meal. I'm a good cook. My food's good. I can tell you some of you have tasted it. Imagine I invite you over to my house. Come on over. I'll cook. It's all free. You don't need a ticket. We'll have a splendid time. And you work all week. You're looking forward to it. Saturday night, you're in the garden. Saturday night, you drive over. Oh, I'm so looking forward to it. Great cooking. And I'll meet you at the door and say, it's £25 to get in. It's 25 quid. Cough up. It's two of you. 50 quid. My food is good, but can you imagine that? A free invitation to eat, and then I give you a bill. That's exactly what Paul's saying here. In simple terms, the promise given to Abraham came first. God is saying to Abraham, you can come to my house for a nice meal. God doesn't then change his mind 400 years later and say to Abraham's descendants, oh, by the way, here's the invoice. I'll give you some laws now. You have to keep them to pay for the promise to come true. That's basically what Paul's saying here. You wouldn't believe it if your worst enemy did that to you. But this is what people think that God is like. This is what people think that God is doing in the Bible. It's treasonable. What Paul is defending here is not just the Bible. He's defending the character of God. What do you think God is, Paul saying? Some kind of liar who offers you something and then makes you pay for it? Give me a break. 
This is not a God who offers you salvation for free and then invoices you. Paul talks here about singulars and plurals. There's lots of ink written on this. I'll tell you the point of it. God promised to bless the whole world through Abraham. He promised him land, but God was not planning to bless the world through some farming project. The point of the promise is that Christ is one of Abraham's descendants. The promise to Abraham is fulfilled in Christ. This is about ultimate blessing. Let me just massage this in a little more. Very quickly, when God made these promises to Abraham, he believed the promise. And a few verses later, Abraham says to God, how can I know? You feel like that sometimes? How honest the Bible is. You believe the promise, and then he says to God, how can I know? God says, go and get some animals. And Abraham knew what was coming. He runs off. Let me help you. Paul is speaking of covenants here in this chapter. In our world, when someone does a covenant, there's a handshake and signatures and witnesses, and it's all signed and sealed, solicitors. That's a covenant. In Abraham's ancient world, here's how this worked. You would take some animals, and you would get a sharp knife, and you would cut the animals in half. And you would separate the pieces. And the two parties to the agreement would solemnly walk through the bloody carcasses. And what they're saying to one another is, if I don't keep my side of this bargain, may what has happened to these animals happen to me. Makes sense, doesn't it? That's a serious promise to be making. So they didn't sign and shake hands. They'd cut some animals up and they'd walk through them. Abraham brings the animals and he actually cuts them up and he waits. Eventually he falls into a deep sleep and in his, in his vision he sees a smoking fire basket come and go between the pieces. What is God saying to Abraham in that chapter? What he's saying is, This is a one-sided covenant. Abraham didn't have to walk through the pieces. God said to Abraham, this is how you'll know. If I don't keep my word to you, may it be to me like what has happened to these animals. And Abraham watched. God didn't require Abraham to walk through those bloody carcasses. This is God saying to Abraham, the responsibility for this agreement is on me, not you. And in the end, you know, Christ actually was cut to pieces, cursed to uphold this early agreement with Abraham. Listen, Abraham's relationship with God depended completely on the free promise of God. The laws that God gave later can't be the bill for that. If that had been the case, Abraham would have had to walk through as well. The whole point of verse 18 If the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God, in his grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. If we are trying to earn our salvation by running up the hill, not only are we misunderstanding the entire point of the Bible, we're actually insulting God. Because what we're saying is, he's not good. His promise won't come true. I need to do it by my own effort rather than trusting his promise. Failing to believe in what God has done in Christ for you 
It's the worst crime you could commit. It's treasonable. You're maligning God's good name. Refusing to believe his promise and preferring to do it yourself. Hey, man, we need to... I've got three. What can we learn? He's still there. Three applications, okay? We will be brief with this. Number one, the cross makes everything click. I don't know if you noticed this, but actually the key to all Paul's three arguments is the cross. It's there in verse 1. It was there in verse 13. It's definitely implied in the language of covenant that we've seen with Abraham. I want you to see that the way you understand both your life and the Bible and the character of God is shaped by the cross. For Paul, Christ is everything. He had viewed Jesus as an abject failure until he met him. And that's what he says in chapter 1 and verse 16. God was pleased to reveal his son in me. Christ and his cross became the central passion of Paul's life. That is the secret of his spiritual power and fruitfulness. He had hated Christ and despised the cross. But as he says at the end of chapter 6, now these very things are his greatest glory. And Paul can say, may I never boast except in the cross of Christ. The cross is the key that makes everything clear. You will not understand your own life, the Bible, or God until you see Christ crucified. And that's practical. Secondly, the cross therefore means that it is safe to fail. Friends, because of the cross, your failure can never be fatal. Your sins can never ruin you. The fearful threat of condemnation has gone. Jesus has taken our curse, the curse of performance-based religion. He's taken it all away. Your Father in heaven is not saying to you every day, I love you if. He's saying, I love you Full stop. It isn't conditional. God's love is as real for you on your bad days as it is on your good days. It doesn't fluctuate based on what you achieve. You are complete in Christ. I don't mean you should fail, but isn't it good to know that it's safe to fail? And lastly, the cross is how you fight for fruitfulness. I want to take you back to chapter 3 and verse 3 where Paul says, Are you so foolish? They're unbelievable. Are you so foolish? Having begun with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? That's the language of attainment. That's the language of running uphill. That's the language of trying to complete our own lives in our own strength. They'd started with Christ, but now they were trying to replace Christ with something else. What Paul is saying to them, and what I want you to get this afternoon, is that the way you carry on is the same way you started. And the way they began was seeing Christ crucified and believing that. Let me try and explain it this way. Let me ask you this. What, 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 theoretically, in your life, what would be like heaven for you?
What is your, if only this were true, then I would be complete and happy and fulfilled. What is that thing? Do you, do you see that the opposite of that thing would be your theoretical hell, wouldn't it? In inverted commas. And more than that, the thing that you then believe that will deliver you this and help you escape from this, that thing is your functional saviour. Friends, this is what is going on in our own hearts behind every sin we ever commit. The issue behind every sin is that we're trusting a different saviour to Jesus to deliver something that we feel we can't live without. It can be very easy for me to say I'm trusting Jesus when I'm actually relying on another functional saviour. What Paul is saying to these dear Galatians is the way to tackle the issues in my life It's not to work harder. It's to keep going back to the cross. To see again how the real saviour delivers me from the real curse and delivers real freedom. Paul's point here is, if you know Christ and his cross, then the other things you want so much or fear losing so much actually don't matter as much as you thought they did. If you have him, friends, you have everything. The secret of fruitfulness is to continually see how much more valuable Jesus is than anything else could ever be. You may be thinking, why on earth did God give laws to his people then? If you're thinking that, You'd be good mates with Paul, because that's exactly where he goes next in verse 19. But you'll have to come back next week to hear about that. Let's pray, shall we?